Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at State Road. And uh, boy, what a blessing that was with all those kids up here. Huh? That was really something else. And uh, the thing I always love as a parent is at the end of that, after they proclaim those wonderful truths and singing for God's people to go, yes, that's right. And just as a parent, that's the part of that presentation I like the most is when you affirm them as worshipers of God. And uh, this morning, of course, is a special time of worship. I love looking out over this sea of red and green. Everybody's dressed appropriately this morning. That's good. Um, Of course, it's the Sunday before Christmas. And something I was thinking about this week is that Christmas is, at least in the way we typically observe it, in our culture maybe, is sort of a backwards-looking holiday. That's not entirely bad. Um, But it was interesting to me, for example, I spent 15 years celebrating Christmas in places like Southern California and Florida. And what's interesting to me in those places is that all the Christmas decorations, you would think they live in Victorian England, (laughs) right? You go outside, it's flip-flops and palm trees, but you come inside and there's like lamp posts covered in snow and it's sort of like everybody's cultural memory harkens back to the Northeast or London, England, or something like that. It's a, it's a holiday that comes wrapped in nostalgia. You look at the ads on TV, and everything looks like it's from the 1950s. You know, the Coke ads are very retro. And even the way we talk about Christmas has more to do with long ago, even in the church, has more, more to do about a long ago historical event. And that's interesting to me. Christmas does come wrapped in memories for most of us. It's a nostalgic time. However, the Christmas of the Bible is really, from top to bottom, a forward-looking kind of affair. Christmas is the moment when Jesus entered the arena with death to fight on our behalf. It's the beginning of the rescue mission which we are even now, as the church, commissioned to further and participate in. But unlike our nostalgia-laden observance of the holiday, when we come to Christmas's future in Titus 2.13, we see that Christmas should be understood and celebrated as a joy-filled, anticipatory, forward-looking celebration of the day when Jesus comes back. Uh, Christmas has always been about anticipation for me. Honestly, like as a kid growing up, you love Christmas morning, you love the gifts, you love the stockings, you love all the excitement of the day, but once it's over, you feel kind of like, oh, it's a whole year until that happens again. The anticipation for Christmas Day is almost better for me as a kid than Christmas Day itself. And as a Christian, there is a a lot to be uh, filled with anticipation about as we celebrate Christmas. And over the past two Sundays, we have been taking a look at Titus 2, 11 through 14. And we've been breaking it out this way. Titus 2, 11 speaks of Christmas past. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That appearing of grace is Christmas. Christmas past. And then Titus 2, 12 speaks of Christmas present. It says that that appearance of grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And we talked about that last week, about Christmas present. And this week, we come to Titus 2.13, Christmas's future. And it says these words, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is right and good to look back and marvel at the goodness of God to us on that first Christmas. There is nothing wrong at Christmas with having a backward-looking focus because that's where God takes us in His Word. He says, remember the appearance of grace. Look at that. Marvel at God's goodness, His excellence to us in sending Jesus on that first Christmas and all that that means. Studying that great event is rich with meaning, significance, and application for us as followers of Jesus today. But it is also true that in order to experience the fullness of joy that is available in the meaning of Christmas, we must also look forward to the future that Christmas points us toward. Isaac Watts was one of the most prolific hymn writers of all time. I think I counted, if you look in our hymnals, there's ten hymns in there written by Isaac Watts. By 1748, when he died, Watts had written over 750 separate hymns. Arguably, though, his most famous hymn is the Christmas classic, Joy to the World, which the kids just sang. It's like the kids and I coordinated that. <laughs> Interestingly, which we didn't, by the way. <laughs> I'm not that organized. Although Joy to the World is now universally recognized as a Christmas song, that fact probably would have surprised Watts because he didn't write it about Christmas. Isaac Watts wrote that classic about the second coming of Christ. And if you pay attention to the lyrics of the song, you'll see that it contains nothing about shepherds, manger, wise men, angels, or anything else traditionally having to do with the Christmas story. And the reason, of course, is that it's not about Christmas. It's not about the first advent of Christ, it's about the second advent of Christ. Listen to these words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. It's not only beautiful poetry, it points us to a wonderful Christmas truth. That the great tide of Christmas is heading irreversibly to its culmination at the end of history in the second coming of Christ. And we know that these words are not describing Christmas because Jesus was not received as a king by most people when he first came into the world. Isaiah 53.3 says of Jesus, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The earth did not receive her king, but rather crucified him. But now we look forward to the day when earth will receive her king, when he returns in glory. That's what Isaac Watts is writing about. And Philippians 2, 9 through 10 is talking about that day when it says this, Therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. There is a coming day where everyone will acknowledge Jesus for who he is. Some with regret, some with bitterness, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the undeniable truth of who he is on that day. On that day, both heaven and nature will sing out and repeat the sounding joy for all eternity. And brothers and sisters, if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you will be among that choir. We will know a joy more full and more satisfying than anything we have ever experienced in our days under the sun. Isaac Watts goes on to write in his famous hymn, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Years ago, my first pastorate in Lulu, Florida, this is only my second. I said first like I've had a dozen. (laughs) Man, how long ago, my first pastorate. You know how experienced I am. Uh, my, when I was in Lulu, Florida, first year I was there, I was struggling to kind of connect with the people a little bit. And so I put a bucket in the back of the sanctuary one Sunday, and I said to the congregation, if you could ask God any question, any question at all, write it down and put it in that bucket. It'll be completely anonymous. And my plan was I was going to take those questions and make a sermon series based on their questions. If you could ask God anything, well, let's look to God's word. Let's see if he speaks to your question. But when I got into my office and I dumped the question bucket out and I started going through them, do you know what about 90% of those questions asked? (laughs) Why do bad things happen? Why do sin and sorrows grow? This is the question they would have put to God. And these questions, by the way, as I got to know these folks, I realized that these questions had not been written down by armchair philosophers sitting in ivory towers who just liked debating interesting ideas. This was a burning question on many of their hearts. In fact, I think if they were really in a one-on-one conversation with God, they wouldn't have said, generally, why do bad things happen? But why did you let that bad thing happen? Where, Where were you? They were carrying with them the heartbreaking baggage that comes from journeying through this broken, fallen world. And I sat in their living rooms, I talked with them, we had dinners together, and I heard their stories, and I came to understand loved ones had died. Some of them had buried their children. Others, their spouses, siblings, and parents. They'd suffered horrible betrayals. They, or those they love, had received dreaded diagnoses from the doctor. They'd been sinned against, sometimes horribly. They had suffered economic setbacks, natural disasters, house fires, car wrecks, and they had struggled to find words as they sat next to deathbeds. And State Road, as I've gotten to know you and your stories, I have become aware that I am speaking to a room full of people who are all too familiar with sins and sorrows of every sort. Just a few moments ago, we sang my all-time favorite Christmas carol. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's my favorite, my personal favorite, and I asked if uh, the team would perform that song this morning. 
rather than not perform it, but, but that we would sing it together. That, that particular Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, was written by a fellow Mainer, a na- native of Portland, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. How come nobody has names like that anymore? <laughs> Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow was a man well acquainted with sins and sorrows. His first wife, they'd been married just a couple years, died following a miscarriage. But in time, he remarried and had six children with a woman named Fanny. In 1861, while Longfellow was taking a nap, his wife Fanny was sealing some locks of hair into an envelope, one of their children's locks of hair. She wanted to preserve them. And as she was sealing the back of the envelope by melting wax, her dress caught on fire. It took off very quickly. Longfellow awoke from his nap, tried to put it out with a rug. That didn't work, so he smothered the flame with his body. In fact, you'll see photographs of Longfellow. He grew a beard after this to hide the scars that he himself was caught on fire. The next day at 10 a.m., Fanny died. Because of his injuries from putting out the flame, he was not able to attend her funeral. His grief drove him to become addicted to laudanum, which was an alcoholic solution containing morphine and was formerly used as a narcotic painkiller. He used it to dull his grief. So profound was Longfellow's grief and depression during this time that his family openly debated committing him to an asylum. That first Christmas after Fanny's death, Longfellow wrote, quote, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays, end quote. A year after the incident, he wrote, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace, end quote. Longfellow's journal entry for December 25th, 1862 reads, A Merry Christmas, say the children but that is no more for me. Just two years after Fanny's tragic death, Longfellow's oldest son, Charlie, who was an officer with the Union Army, was shot in a skirmish and nearly killed in Virginia. The bullet entered his left shoulder and exited right under his right shoulder after grazing his spine. The doctor wrote Henry Wadsworth Longfellow to inform him that the injury was very serious possibly life-threatening, and that it seemed likely that some degree of paralysis would probably ensue. On Christmas Day of that year, 1863, Longfellow, a 57-year-old, twice-widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had been paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, sat down and wrote a poem to capture everything that was going on in his heart at the time. And the result is the Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He heard the singing of peace on earth, but he looked on an emotional landscape that was bleak, dark, broken, lonely. And of course, he wrote these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And if that was where the song ended, that would describe well the depths of pain and grief that many feel at Christmas, but it would fall short of the Christmas hope, the substantial, real, meaty thing that Christians celebrate at Christmas time. But he continued, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That is not a nostalgic, backward-looking Christmas song. That is a forward-looking Christmas hope that Longfellow captures beautifully in his song, I Heard the Bell on Christmas Day. I know well, because I know some of you well enough, that this Christmas is a time marked by pain. <laughs> Memories bring forth tears, not grins. I know that many of you are struggling this Christmas. And when you hear the bells chiming and the songs playing, you can't enter into the merriness of it because your heart is broken. And I would encourage you, if that's true, to join with Longfellow in embracing the truth that the right will prevail. That Christmas has a forward hope that we are clinging to and united around. That we're living in the midst of horrible brokenness. But Christmas is much more about what is coming than what has already come to pass. Jesus said these words. I love to look through the Bible and find these times when Jesus tries to explain Christmas. There's about 18 of them. I don't have time to read them all. But whenever Jesus in the Bible says, for this reason I came, or I appeared for this reason, he is attempting to explain the significance of Christmas. For example, in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or what about when the Bible says in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think that's a verse that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow could have embraced in a full-throated way. Oh, God, hasten the day when you destroy all of this nastiness. The Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, 1 John 4, 9. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, Luke 4, 18. Every one of these is an attempt by Jesus to explain Christmas. It's why he came. To destroy the works of the devil, to deliver us out of this place, to give us a future and a hope, to set us free, 
Think of the story that we're living in. Brothers and sisters, you are today living in the days between the two comings of Jesus Christ. He came at Christmas long ago as a sacrificial lamb. But he is coming again, we are told in the Bible, as a lion. Romans 3.10 tells us no man is righteous of their own. We are all guilty of sin and rebelled against a holy God who hates sin and demands justice. We are all deserving of punishment for our sin. But the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross on our behalf. Jesus existed as God before time began, and through him all things were made. But on that first Christmas, Jesus moved himself into the created order he had made through the Virgin Mary, in order that he might enter the arena with death and thereby defeat it so that we might be set free unto the life abundant and life eternal. We might be freed from this body of death. Jesus never sinned and lived a perfect life of obedience and thus fulfilled the demands of the law on our behalf. He was crucified for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. But three days after dying in our place on the cross, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He was resurrected to glory and lives forevermore as our high priest interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. The Lord Jesus has been given all power and authority. He has sent out his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the good news and to teach others to obey everything that he commanded them. He is now exalted and sits at the right hand of God. God has anointed a day to righteously judge the entire world by Jesus Christ. We are called to preach the gospel and to warn all of mankind to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that we may receive the Holy Spirit. By grace and through faith we are justified and reconciled back to God with whom we were formerly estranged through the finished work of Jesus. Blessed is the person who forsakes his sin and puts trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and cursed is the person who forsakes the faith and puts trust in his own good works. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of his grace will be rejected on that great day of judgment. But as for the redeemed of God, when the chief shepherd appears, those who have put their trust in Jesus will enter into the joy of his presence and will receive the unfading crown of glory. There will be pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. Those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation will dwell in a new earth, in perfect, unending happiness in a world and amidst relationships unmarred by sin or suffering of any sort. Sin and sorrows will no longer grow. And then to wrap up the long list of quotes from the Bible, we come to John 16, 22. So for the present, we have sorrow. But we will see Jesus again, and then our hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take our joy from us. Titus 2.13 speaks of Christmas's future when it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is a waiting for the moment when we will see Jesus again and no one will take away our joy from us. But we're living in those days between. We're living in the days of grace. We're living in the days of decision. Jesus Christ came at Christmas that we have seen the appearance of grace through God's word. We have come to understand the meaning and significance of why Jesus came. And these are the days when we can make a decision about all of that. But the day is coming where the days of decision will come to an end. We must all answer for ourselves who is Jesus and what is his significance. And if anyone here this morning has not made a decision for Jesus, you have not put your trust in Jesus for salvation, what a great thing it would be this Christmas to receive Jesus as a gift. God doesn't want anything from you. He wants to give you himself this Christmas. And if you want to talk about that some more, I would love to talk with you following the service today. Don't leave here without talking to me about it. But as I said in the midweek email this past week, Titus 2.13 talks about waiting for our blessed hope, and anyone who was once a child on Christmas Eve knows something about waiting with hope, don't they? When I was growing up, Christmas Eve was easily the longest day of the year. Uh, for, forget what they say about the winter solstice and days being longer around this time of the year. It's not true. Any kid can tell you Christmas Eve is the longest day of the year. And I can remember that my brother Job and I used to share a bedroom back then, and it was our annual tradition to stay up and try and listen for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. We had a bunk bed. I was in the top bunk. Job was in the bottom bunk. And I would lean over and we would whisper to each other. Every little sound we heard was like, what do you, do you think that was reindeer on the roof? <laughs> we would whisper back and forth in the dark. I was so excited it seemed impossible I could ever fall asleep. But you know, at some point, always, every Christmas Eve, our conversation would trail off. My eyelids would get heavy, my breathing would level out, and then I would dream of sugar plums dancing in my head. <laughs> I was asleep. <laughs> and yet, even though I slept, I didn't miss out on Christmas. Above that deep and dreamless sleep, the silent hours ticked by until that glorious moment when my eyes blinked open and it was Christmas Day. In the living room, we would find the heavy stockings, the gifts, and all the other Christmas surprises that bore mute testimony to the fact that our hopes had been vindicated. <laughs> and you know, sometimes at this time of year, I think we can just catch the slightest hint of what heaven will be like. And I mean very slight I'm always afraid when I make these kind of hyperbolic statements that it actually has the effect of minimizing the glories of heaven rather than elevating 
our anticipation of it. What can I compare to heaven? I mean in just the slightest way. I think we catch just the faintest hint of what Christmas might be like at this time of year. Far-flung loved ones are gathered home. There's a prevailing atmosphere of goodwill and cozy togetherness. The lights and decorations, the excitement, the feasting and music, festive gatherings, gift-giving. There's a merry sense of wonder and special times of worship. All these things are just a pale, pale, pale foreshadowing of what will follow the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christmas has always been a high-water mark of earthly joy for me. But even so, this season stirs within me a longing for something even more joyous and more substantial. You know, I like to compare it to this. Smelling food cannot satisfy a person's appetite. In fact, it's cruel. It only only makes you hungrier, right? Oh, you're really hungry? Sit here and smell these delicious smells. That'll satisfy you. No, it just makes you salivate. You want it all the more. Well, I think something similar goes on at Christmas. As good as this season can be, doesn't it just arouse within your heart an appetite for something more, something permanent, something enduring and eternal, something that can't be snatched away by a phone call, a visit to the doctor, a bad bit of news? How many generations have looked excitedly for the promised day of Jesus' return? How many have spoken to one another about their hope in Christ as Job and I spoke with hope on those long-ago Christmas Eves? They looked to the sky. They listened for the trumpet. But at some point, their limbs grew heavy. The spark went out of their eyes, and their breathing stopped altogether. How many millions of Christians are in the grave? And yet, even though they fell asleep, they will not miss out on the promised day that they had longed to see. Christmas is about the hope that after all those deep and dreamless years of sleep in the grave, those same eyes will blink open again and find that their hope in Christ had been vindicated. That is ultimately the Christmas hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Be encouraged this Christmas, my brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that our Christmas hope is something more substantial than what our culture offers at this time of year. For so many, Lord, Christmas is as good as it gets. But for us, 
it is as bad as it gets. These days under the sun, God, are not what we have invested our hearts in. We thank you so much for sending Jesus on that long-ago Christmas day, the appearance of grace. Father, we have pinned all of our hopes to that wonderful gospel truth that Jesus died for us, and that is the sum total of what we bring you. We bring you nothing but our need. None of us are good this Christmas, God. None of us can boast in your presence. We are all needy people who have received from you what is needed, and so we are satisfied, and so we sing. God, you have given us forgiveness for our past. You have filled our present with joy, even as it is mingled with sorrow. And Father, you have given us a great and glorious future hope. And Father, this Christmas we worship you, we celebrate you, not only because Jesus came, but because he's coming back for us. We look forward to the day. And until that day comes or until the spark goes out of our eyes, we will continue to worship you and praise you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.